from home. They wanted to get the project done, put in long days, and get home to be with their family. And so they had, I think they'd finished up maybe late last night, got on the last ferry across kind of thing, driven up. They look exhausted this morning. I don't want to say they look bad, but they certainly looked tired. Um, and so I mentioned in the first service, there's a great picture in why we, one of the reasons why we come to church. And it's just that picture of us as Christians where we're out and living our life and being spent living out the gospel. And then as we come together, that we are encouraged, that we are refreshed, that we are strengthened. And so I'm so glad to see you here this morning. Um, I'm just glad that you're here to worship God and yeah, just to join with us. And, and so I do pray that God will provide grace and strengthen you for what you're going through, whether good or bad, what you're going through, going to go through in this coming week and that he will strengthen you. Before we get to the sermon, we want to spend some time in prayer. Uh, for those who have been asking, uh, in the first service anyway, there were some people that were asking, did Pastor Don and Dave, did they get away and their families? They did. Apparently, they are swimming with sharks. And I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, pirates and walking the plank and stuff. Apparently, this is a positive thing. We have a, we have a senior pastor who doesn't like the snow, but likes to swim with sharks. Like, what does that tell you about him? I don't know. Um, but uh, anyway, it sounds like they are on vacation and it's working out and that's good. Um, some things we also want to be praying about. I was saying also in the first service, we had our annual general meeting this past week. And uh, I think one of the highlights, I mean, you know, annual general meetings, sometimes they're not the best. Uh, sometimes they're a little boring. They can be a little dry. Um, uh, this one was great. Um, and there was no excitement of the wrong type. Every once in a while, things can come unglued and we say things we maybe shouldn't. But it was a, it was a great meeting. And I think one of the highlights for me was just the time we spent in prayer uh, just before we kind of got into the business and going through the agenda and all the usual business stuff was just to see the small groups of people throughout the sanctuary uh, just taking the time to pray and thank God for his blessing on their church here and on you know, the finances and even to be able to pray for those who are going to step in and take on kind of like new ways to serve, whether that's as, uh, on, our, on our board or as deaconesses or in different roles. There was a number of people that were prayed and affirmed and just encouraged into those roles. And so we want to be thankful and just acknowledge God's faithfulness to us as, as a church. We also want to be praying for um, Monica. Um, she is one, uh, a regular here. She's here. She's part of our prayer team, part, part of our prayer ministry, and then also with ladies' Bible study. She had hip surgery this week. I think it's went straightforward. It's, you know, fairly early in the game. Um, so, but obviously with something like that, there's, there's recovery and pain. So we want to be praying for Monica and her husband, Will, and family. Um, and so we want to be praying for that as well. And uh, also, uh, Don McCaig, uh, we continue to stand with him. I'm not sure. He'll probably watch the sermon online, so uh, he might hear me mention his name. Um, but you know, you guys know he is such a heart for God, and yet it's just been a tough chapter for his family. His brother had a, had a stroke, a pretty serious stroke, and uh, even with his own health is not great. And so to be at church is a struggle for him. And um, so we, even though he's not with us here most Sundays, we still miss him and, and, and wish that he he could be in our presence. He's always such an encouragement. Um, always comes up and thanks us for the worship or the singing part of the worship or thanks you if you preach. So um, I just want to pray for Don and just for some health struggles that he's dealing with. So yeah, with that, let's uh, come to prayer. Father, we are just thankful for the Reeves being able to get together or get away and the buns as well and just thankful for uh, just a time for them to rest and just that you'd bless them in that. Lord, we want to thank you again just for our congregation and 
Lord, just for that evidence that you're in our midst, Lord, and, and your blessing in terms of um, just that unity that we enjoy and just finances and the way you've blessed us. And Father, I'm just thankful for the encouragements that I see uh, each Sunday. I just see people surrounding their own little group and encouraging them and coming along and pastorally caring for them. And Lord, I'm excited for uh, just what this next year will bring for us as a church. We're excited, Lord, just for the ministries and the vision that you've given us. And Lord, just praying, Lord, that you would bless, Lord. Again, we would long to see more people come to saving faith in you. And we just recognize, again, just the, the lostness of our neighborhood and of our town. And Father, just thankful for Jesus, who is the one who can save. And Lord, we pray that he would be proclaimed clearly in this year, whether at youth or Sunday school or here on Sunday mornings or even in the workplaces we would share. And Lord, would you... Um, yeah, may people hear of the gospel and by your spirit be saved. And Father, we, we, we pray and just to even to that end. And Lord, I do pray for those who are sick. You know, there's a lot of sickness at this time of year. And Lord, just people who would love to be here but can't. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them even if they're at home. Um, and Lord, I think of Monica. Lord, we just are so thankful for her heart just to pray for people and just to pray for the ministries here. Father, we're so thankful, Lord, for her heart to intercede on, on behalf of people, to pray on behalf of people to God. And Lord, we're just thankful for that. We do want to pray again, Lord, just even for this message. And excuse me, Lord, that you would use it for your glory and that you would speak through me. And, and Lord, just give us all uh, ears to be able to hear and to understand and just to apply your word. And Father, just that you'd be glorified. Lord, I'm also thankful for the gleaners and for that ministry. And just thankful, Lord, for the many people that will be fed because of the work that they're doing. And just thankful that we can partner with them, just continue to bless and to supply what they have need of. And Father, we uh, pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Yeah, just again, just finishing that thought off. Uh, the gleaners and typically the missionaries that the missions committee would highlight here, I think it's the third Sunday of every month. They're missionaries that we're supporting as a church. Um, and so it's been our privilege just to come alongside the gleaners and to be able to support them. Um, you may have seen in the video, I was in the video, I'm famous. Um, I didn't get any royalties. Um, I did think it was kind of interesting. There was that scene and everyone's cutting up veg. And then there's Megan just smiling away. And if you know Megan, she's always smiling. And there was my Luke who was with us for the day, talking away, just talking away. And if you knew Luke, that is very much how he operates in this world. And to talk and to fill that dead space. Um, so it was just interesting, even in that little short video clip, how it captured so much of our the people that we know. But yeah, um, I think as young adults, we're going to be heading out there. Uh, the ministry is going to be heading out there just to help again. And we uh, we might even throw that open to the congregation and see if, if you want to jump in with us and come out for a Saturday and uh, chop up potatoes and veg and stuff. You get to use knives. It's good. Um, so <coughs> anyway, let's get to the word. So Romans 6 is where I want to go this morning. Um, Romans 6 is a great passage. Um, it is one of those passages that is, I don't want to say it's hard in the sense of it's hard so you should avoid it, but I mean there's just a lot in the language where you might have to read it a couple of times or you might be like, oh, what exactly does that mean? Um, but what is clear uh, is that Paul is speaking uh, just about our relationship, the relationship that Christians enjoy with the Lord Jesus and, and just the, the benefits of what that means to be united with him. And so I wanted just to spend some time uh, focusing on that. 
And then in particular, as you look through that passage, he's speaking about our relationship with sin. And this is why I wanted to land here, um, was, I I don't know about you, but I I just know over the years that I've had those times where I've struggled just to know uh, just exactly how do I live victoriously? How do I live uh, out my faith in such a way that would honor God and sort of follow the the command to live a holy life? And just being aware of, of just multiple layers of temptation and just even of times when I, I wasn't super victorious or times when I give, I didn't really fight against temptation or I didn't even feel I knew how to fight against temptation. And so that's why I wanted to come to this passage this morning. And so we're going to look at maybe some heavier stuff just in terms of our position in Christ and what that means. And then look at some of the, the working out of that, why that's important, how that's going to help you this week, how that's going to help you when a temptation would come this week, how are you going to respond? And hopefully in light of, uh, of the positional stuff, it's going to help you in the present uh, is what we're going to be looking at. And so, um, yeah, let's, uh, let me read Romans 6 as we uh, yeah, come to it. So Romans 6 and uh, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, it is, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Amen. Just reading so far. Are you keeping up so far? It's a technical uh, passage, but a good passage. Um, And let's just, as we jump into it, you can see kind of the logic of where he's going. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So obviously there's that connection with what he's been saying in chapter 5. And really what he's been dealing with is just that reality that grace, the superiority and the supremacy of grace, that it covers our sin. And of course he's outlined in the first couple of chapters just the need for grace, that we are all affected by sin, all dead in sin. And then the the only hope we have is in Christ, our righteousness through faith in him. And then he starts bringing in at the end of five, just the supremacy of grace. And so it's as if he can, uh, he's expecting that people would say, but Paul, aren't you saying then that we would sin more and then we'd have more of this grace? Um, And so he said, no, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, then he would say, it can't even be like that. Your logic is flawed. 
uh, because his point is how can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's really the, the simple, like, boil it down to the very low, lowest common denominator. That's really what he's saying uh, is, if, look, you've died to sin, Christian, you've died to sin. So how would it be possible for you to live on in that sin as if you hadn't even been saved? It'd be an impossibility because salvation has brought such a radical change. And so that's really the heart of his argument. Um, and so uh, if you would remember nothing else, just remember that, that your relationship has changed. If you're here and you're a believer, your relationship to sin has so changed that it's an impossibility that you would continue to live as if it had never happened. Salvation had never happened. Salvation is so radical, it makes such a change that it's going to change our relationship with sin. But let's dig a little deeper. I have five kind of points that I want to bring out as we work our way through. Um, and it's kind of tying in with that, and are we to continue? So the we is the pronoun, and you see we, like that word throughout the passage. Um, and really he's, he's just describing what, how should the we look? How should Christians look? What is that appearance? Or what has happened to them? It's not just things that we have to do. It's also stuff that Christ has done for us. And so he's continually uh, bringing that out. Look, the we are the Christian. What is our relationship to Christ? And what is our relationship to sin? How does that affect it? And so the first thing I want to highlight is we are joined with Christ, or our union with Christ. And so as you look through the passage, you would see words like baptized. You would see words like united, and it's united with him. Um, and then even that phrase, with him, or with Christ. And over and over again, there's that argument or that logic of where it's flowing out of because of who we are in Christ, because of our identification with him, our union with him, because he has done these things, then by default, it has happened for us. He is our representative. Um, and so uh, someone has said, whatever Christ did as our representative, God counted it as being something we did too. And you can kind of see the wording of that where he would speak about the death of Christ. It was a death that we died and crucified and a crucifixion that we were crucified. And if we've been crucified with him, then we will be raised with him. Um, and so that's the first thing that we're to get. Christian, you have been united with Christ. Now, I don't know if your testimony is like mine. My, my mom and dad, well, my dad was a pastor. My mom was pastor's wife. And so I spent lots of time around church. Um, in fact, probably my earliest memories around church. I don't ever remember a time when I didn't know of, you know, Sunday school or the Bible stories or the gospel. I don't ever remember a time when church wasn't really important in our lives. Um, and yet probably about the age of seven or eight was when I accepted Christ as Savior. But even in that, um, a lot, it, it wasn't like a dramatic Damascus Road kind of conversion where I'd been living some kind of blatantly sinful life and, you know, it wasn't like that. Um, but it was a true experience. Andrew was united with Christ. And in that, in that experience of salvation was really the application of all of what Christ had accomplished for me. And so maybe your testimony is the same, we're saved at a young age and you're like, it wasn't super dramatic. And you don't misunderstand what's being said here because what he's saying is for all of us, conversion is hugely dramatic because in our conversion, as I said, is that application of what Christ has done for us, our application of our union with him. And so it's important that we recognize just what Christ has done for us. And it's important for two reasons, because if we don't realize it, we're, we run the risk of minimizing sin. If we don't grasp just the great price that 
Christ paid for us, if we don't read through a passage like this and see what it meant that he would die a death and what it would mean that he was crucified, what it would mean that because of him he took the punishment that we deserved, then we run the risk of minimizing sin and then we run the risk of not seeing the necessity of a holy life. And so it's important that we get what does it mean that we are united in Christ? What does it mean that when Christ died on the cross, that it's, there's an application for us and, and what is going on with us and in, in, in our lives. Now, that little word baptism or baptized, that might be a confusion, confusing term. We're very familiar with baptism and the tank and immersion and, and, and what it would symbolize and that outward expression or that outward display of some inward reality that has taken place in our lives. And that's connected with it, but really what it's speaking about here, when it uses the word baptism, I think primarily it's drawn it to the fact that a believer is being immersed into Christ. That just as that person would be immersed into the water, so we are immersed into Christ. And that's why there is that connection with it, where it would say things like, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized or immersed into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death. You see that? We are immersed into his, him so that whenever he was going through those things, the significance of what he accomplished was for you and for me. He was our representative. And so we see that's the first thing. Don't forget. Don't forget that we are united with Christ. Don't forget the significance of that, that it's not a small thing, but it's monumental in terms of how it affects our relationship to sin. Then sort of the second point is an extension of that because you can see there in verse 4, he goes through all the ways that we're united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. So then what? You see, we're to walk in newness of life. You see that there at the end of verse four? Um, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And because of that, then we too might walk in newness of life. And this is describing just the, the Christian life, what it's meant to be, that there's meant to be a quality to the Christian, a quality to the life that God has called us to that is new. And it's not new in terms of like chronologically, so it's not just like a new month will start, so it's, you know, March will be here upon us soon. It's not just that, but really what it's bringing out in that word is it's bringing out the newness of quality and the freshness and the supremacy of the new in comparison to the old. And you kind of can pick up on that where he's talking about our old body of sin being crucified and put to death. And he's trying to get them to understand that the old, that before Christ uh, was really, uh, it was old and it was worn out and it was tattered. And yet what we have in Christ is newness of life. And again, it's the outflow of what comes through our being united with him. You can see other ways in which we are to uh, use that word new, or which the Bible uses the word new as it talks about uh, salvation of course, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a fairly well-known one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But even throughout Scripture, there's other descriptions where believers are described as new. In Ezekiel, there's uh, a new heart uh, that's, that's part of that conversion experience that's given to us in regeneration. There's a new spirit. There's a new song in Psalm 40 and verse 3. There's a new name in Revelation. And then we're called a new creation in that 2 Corinthians passage. And then a new creature in Galatians 6.15 and a new self uh, in Ephesians 4.24. And so again, to be saved is not just a slight difference. It's not just a change of priorities. It's not just a, a, a sort of a, a slight attitude adjustment. But really it's the old is gone and we're called to the new. 
And yet that's something that's been done. You see it here, past tense. It's because of what Christ has done. We can walk in newness of life. We can be saved. And so you can see that that's what we, part of our identity with Christ. Whenever I came to Canada, there'll be things, and this is not a perfect illustration, but there will be things that I will never, in a sense, stop being Irish about. Some of the ways I think, I, it's just who I am. It'll never change. But there were things that I had to, to change, to, that I, I had to give up, in a sense, to be Canadian. Um, and you might be thinking, what does he mean? Well, there's just different things. One, I had to drive on the other side of the road. That's, you know, you guys seem to insist on that. Um, uh, but, but there's just that, it would be inappropriate for me to, to drive on that other side of the road. I, I, I have done it a few times. I may have told you those stories before, but it's inappropriate, right? Because a new country, new laws, a new way of living. Um, and even, <laughs> even drinking coffee. I mean, it's a minor thing. Irish people drink coffee. I was one of the Irish people that didn't drink coffee. Um, but even uh, the first couple of years of being here, every pastor I went to visit, they would just pour you a cup of coffee and assume that you would drink it. And I'd never drank coffee up to that point. And so you just started drinking it, and now I'm addicted. So uh, thanks, <laughs> Canada. <laughs> Way to go. Um, but no, it, but there's just that old and the new, right? And that's what he's trying to get across to them, right? There was an old way. And that old way is not unreported. That was put to death. When Christ would die on the cross and take the punishment for my sins, that old Andrew, that pre-conversion Andrew was put to death. And there's a new Andrew. There's, you might say, well, hopefully it's, we'd hope for more improvement, but uh, there, there's a new Andrew, right? There's, and that's true of all believers. And again, fundamentally, whether you're saved out of a Christian background or whether you're saved from the streets, there's just that reality that that monumental change has happened, even if the outward expression of that sin is not the worst that it could be. The old Andrew needed to be put to death. I didn't just need to be improved on. And the new Andrew is that new l newness of life that I have been given in conversion. Then by extension of that again, so we're united with Christ and all that stuff, and I don't mean stuff in a light way, but the, the, the stuff I've been chatting about, all that Christ accomplished, I was united with him and he was my representative. And so because of that, I, am, I have a newness of life to walk in. And then because of that also, I'm no longer enslaved to sin. Do you see that there in verse six? Um, that's the first time he brings up the phrase, no longer enslaved to sin. And then verse seven, set free from sin. And then uh, verse nine, death no longer has dominion over him. Right? And so you see that language where there was a way that I used to behave, a way that I used to, a relationship that I used to have with sin that is not that way anymore. Whereas once I was under the dominion of sin, I'm not anymore. And that's what he's saying. Because of Christ, because of my identity and union in him, then I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I'm free. And you, you catch that verse in the Gospels, you know, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And speaking of that, again, just that monumental change, change that has happened. And so you no longer need to be enslaved to sin. Um, so Spurgeon, you guys are familiar likely with that name. He was a fairly famous uh, pap uh, pastor from the 1800s, preached in London, England. He was a really gifted preacher, both in terms of how he could handle the text and how he would, just even in, uh, as a speaker, he was a gifted communicator. Um, but more than that, just when you look at some of the fruit that came out of his ministry, um, there was people were converted. And 
you have, you've got to be careful because you guys know it's not just that man. That's not what I'm saying. But under his preaching ministry, there were people converted and the church grew and different things that went on like that. Anyway, he was walking, and you've got to think 1800. So this is not, you know, um, red buses and sort of the London we think of now, taxi cabs and that. But jump back, think more like Oliver Twist. Like think back to that generation where there's horses and carriages and this kind of thing. And so he was walking to church one day and sees a guy in the gutter um, um, living there and starts witnessing to him. Uh, and eventually the, the man is, is converted and within a few weeks has went back to his family and tried to put some stuff right and um, had dealt with some of his addiction issues and got a job and stuff like that and was doing really well. And then uh, the story is told that a couple of months later Spurgeon's walking back home and sees the man right back in the gutter. Uh, and so the man looks up at Spurgeon and says something along the lines of, tell me I don't belong here. Sort of indignantly, like this is my home. And Spurgeon replies, you don't belong here. Somewhat confused. And then he went on to, just to, to speak to him about this, this new life that he has been called to live out. Again, just I wonder if that's what you need just to be reminded of this morning. In your struggle with temptation, and your struggle with sin, that you need to be remind, reminded that there's a reason why you don't feel at home there. There's a reason why it doesn't really satisfy. There's a reason why it doesn't bring you the joy that maybe it did in the past. And that's because if you're in Christ, you've been made new. And you've been made, given those new, that new heart and those new appetites. And so it will never satisfy. We may play around with it, and, but it's, it's, it's never going to satisfy. And so you do not belong there. You're no longer enslaved to sin. The other thought I'd had about this that I've found so helpful, um, again, I, I can't even remember where I heard the illustration, but it, it goes something like this. Uh, the circus was coming to town, and this was, you know, back in the days, I don't know if, I haven't seen a circus in a long time, but, uh, you know, whenever the circus would come to town and they would all come marching in to some field or something in town and set up, and, of course, the elephants were coming through town. I don't know if it's okay still to have elephants in circuses, but just allow me to have elephants in my circus for now. Um, the elephants are coming through town, and so this guy is just amazed, seeing the animals, seeing, you know, the acrobats, and seeing everybody parade through town, and they make it to the field, and there he watches with amazement as they get these elephants hooked up to harnesses, and they pull up the poles, and, you know, pull up the tent, and they're so strong, and he's amazed by it. And then he starts, after they've set up, he starts to walk through where all their, you know, trailers and tents and stuff are. And there he sees uh, the elephant is tied up. And it's tied up with just the thinnest little rope. And he can't get over it. He's like, sure, that elephant could just break that rope. He had seen it pull up tents and haul real heavy things around. Surely that elephant could just break free at any moment. And so his curiosity gets the better of him. And so he asks the elephant keeper, hey, how come the elephant doesn't escape? And so the elephant says, hey, you remember, elephants don't forget. And so whenever that was a little baby elephant and had no strength, we would tie it with that rope. And so now that elephant's pretty sure that he can't break out of that rope. But he knows, uh, the, the elephant keeper knew that he could. Now, I don't know if that's true. It's a preacher's story. It's kind of made up somewhat. So I don't know if elephants don't really forget. It's always what people say. I should have Googled it before I got up. But here's the point. Sometimes I find when it comes to stuff like this, the way that we function on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like Satan is tying us up with this really small rope. And we haven't remembered, we don't remember just the power of the gospel that sets us free. 
We don't remember the newness of life that we've been called into. We don't remember the promises and the position, the promises of God and the position that we have as believers. And so whenever it comes to just handling temptation, when it comes to on a day-to-day basis how we live the Christian life, I think Satan wants to just come as it were and just tie us up and we, we sort of follow him along meekly. And yet I think we need to be reminded, not that, you know, elephants can break small ropes, that's not the point, but we need to be reminded and remember of just who we are in Christ and of what he has done for us and what he has accomplished for us. Again, as you think about that new life in Christ, think about no longer being enslaved to sin, maybe again you need to be reminded of the power of the gospel and how it's at work in your life. Now, maybe you're like me. I used to, hate's probably too strong, but I used to have a hard time when I would hear people preach on these kind of passages because I was in such turmoil within because they would use these phrases like, if you're a Christian, you're dead to sin. See what it says here? And I could see it in the text. And yet, oh, in my Christian life, sin seems so alive to me. And I was just aware of failures and of, of, of just the victory that they seem to speak of and the past tense kind of like, this has been won for you. How did that apply to the everyday life? And, and how could I reconcile that with just like epic failure in my Christian experience? And so for me, that led to just guilt and condemnation and, you know, doubt and salvation and those kind of things. And, and thank, I'm thankful for those who eventually when I shared this, they would say, whoa, Andrew, this is why, how these things come together. And so that's kind of where we're going to go to now is just a little bit of how, if this is true, if this is past tense, how does this apply to the present? How come I still have to wrestle with sin and, and, and still deal with temptation? So this is the fourth thing we see, um, is that we know self-surrender leads to slavery. Now, that's a bit of a wordy title. Don't worry about that heading. We'll come back and explain it a little bit more. But look at verse 16. You sit there, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves? So here he's jumping ahead and he's saying to them, look, you know you've been set free. But now he's bringing in this way in which he's saying, but it's possible that you present yourself as slaves. It's possible that even though you have been set free, that you don't live in that freedom. Now, he's going to call them to, op- to present themselves as willing slaves. You see that in the verse down where he's saying, hey, look, I'm thankful that you present yourself as slaves to righteousness or that you try to obey God. But he starts off by saying to them, look, don't you know, whoever you present yourself to as slaves, uh, if you p- present that obedience, it's like you become a slave to that thing. And so here's, again, just a reminder that might be helpful. Remember, Pastor Don brought it up a few months ago, just how even in that time, slavery wasn't always by, uh, like, the way we would think of it, where someone says, maybe taken from their home and they're forced to serve as a slave and they have no choice. There was, slavery was a way that people could pay off debts or a way that people could put food on the table. And so there was, for the Romans, as they would have got this letter, um, that's probably where their mind would have went to of, of those who would voluntarily enter into slavery to pay off a debt. And so he sent to them, hey, look, there are those, and it's like they are trying to offer themselves, but they're offering themselves to sin, but don't do it. And so he says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to that one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness, the two options. And so here's where the sort of the past meets the present, where 
it brings in the significance of the decisions we make each and every day. Now, this is not the way a weight of, oh boy, every time I give in to temptation, I've blown it. Well, there's a truth to that, but I think the bigger thing is to recognize just the value, the value of what can happen each and every day as you live out your faith. That with each and every day, with each and every decision that we make, to a temptation comes and we're like, no, I want to worship God. I want to please Him. I'm going to flee from that temptation and I'm going to run towards my Savior. That even that is a willing, uh, where we offer uh, um, just a sacrifice to the Lord and, and, and worship Him. And so think of that heading. We know self-surrender leads to slavery. So He's saying to them, look, whenever you willingly obey someone, it's like you make yourself their slave. And so He's saying, so be careful. Don't offer yourself to sin. Offer yourself to God. And so again, you see something of what is, my, what is my job as a Christian? My job each and every day, my task that is before me is that I would make that the priority, that I would offer myself to the Lord and everything I do. And that comes right into the heart of how we handle and how we deal with temptation. And you see as he works his way through, he says that, but thanks be to God, this is verse 17, that you who are once slaves of sin, so that was the past, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. They committed their heart in light of the gospel, in light of the scriptures, in light of the standard of teaching that they had committed themselves to, they then lived that out in obedience. And having been set free from sin, had become slaves of righteousness. And so you see that full circle where they were saved from sin and slavery to sin, and yet now they present themselves as slaves of righteousness. But there's also a little clause, as it were, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. See, I've been talking about a law and that principle where always in the past, the old man would always have done the wrong thing. You might say, well, I wasn't as bad as I could be. It's not necessarily what he's talking about, but here's what he's saying. But now, even though you present yourselves as slaves of righteousness, we still have weaknesses. We still have those natural limitations. There's gonna be those struggles that we have. We're not always gonna get it right, but he would send them, but as best as you can, you have presented yourself as slaves to righteousness. You presented your members to him. And so that's something to think about, even as you're thinking of, how do I live out the Christian life this week? Just be aware that even in every decision, that self-surrender in those decisions is leading you to a form of slavery. And so present ourselves to God. The last thing, just to wrap it up here, we can and we need to obey in the present tense. So this is again the we that he's speaking about. We, the, what has happened in the past and our identification with Christ, and we're still united and in Christ now, but because of what is accomplished on the cross, then there's present tense obedience that we are to concern ourselves with. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Right, so that's an ongoing, like do this now kind of tense, right? And let not sin therefore reign. So in other words, this week, what's our job? Don't let sin be your boss. Don't let sin be your boss, right? That's the point. Or be in charge of you. We're not to do that. We're not just to follow after and pursue a life of sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. So don't give in to it. Don't follow its passions, but rather present yourself to him. Then the second thing you see that's present tense, there is verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments or tools for unrighteousness. So in other words, whenever we present ourselves, it's like we're, that we're working towards unrighteousness is what he's saying. It's tools for unrighteousness. But what are we to do? We're to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. 
So again, each and every day, if you're going to school this week, if you're going to a job, if you're staying at home, if you're enjoying retirement, whatever it is, if whatever you find yourself in the multitude of choices and things that we have to handle, what are, what's our goal? What can be sort of the umbrella that covers everything is that we're presenting our members to God as those who have been brought from death to life, right? So in light of what has happened, we're in Christ, new life, uh, the dominion of sin has been broken, we're no longer slaves. So in light of that, this is what we're to do. We're to present our members to God. Now members is a bit of a funny word, like we don't use it in this sense, but really he's just talking about the parts of our body. And that was where Paul would always anchor a holy life in a very real physical body. So he's saying, hey, it matters what thoughts go through your mind. It matters how you use your body. It matters how you use your fists. It matters how you use your temper. It matters all those different things, how you use your strength. If you use your strength and your willpower for selfishness, he says it matters. And so that's when he sent all the members, he sent every part of your body. And I think he's just grounding it in the physical. Like don't be tempted to think that this is some sort of spiritual level that he's speaking about up here that doesn't really concern real life out here. No, he's saying holiness with God is going to affect every part of our lives. The very physical, the very hands-on kind of, of way that we handle life. And then one more there that he speaks of. I'm speaking in human terms. This is verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. So that's the past. So with that same passion, but actually with supernatural or spiritual energy, we're now to present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And so that should be the picture over our lives this week. But it's going to be anchored in the thoughts. It's going to be anchored in how we spend our time. It's going to be anchored in all those things that we think through. And so you can see there the need. When Paul's writing this to these people, he's picturing them as right now start to work these things out into your everyday life. And the same is to be said for us as well. Let me conclude by turning to Hebrews 4 and 14 to 16. And this is, again, just for your comfort and for your encouragement. So that was Hebrews 4 and 14 to 16. You might want to spend some time just unpacking are just even being encouraged with this this afternoon. Uh, verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So this is picturing Christ as that one who intercedes in our behalf. That's the point. So since that's what Christ does, let us hold fast our confession. Like hold fast to our faith. Don't give up on it. Why? Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So in other words, Christ can sympathize with your weaknesses. That's the, the, the point. Why? Because one who in every respect, so this is speaking of the Lord Jesus, has been tempted as we are. So he can sympathize with you and your weaknesses, with me and my weaknesses, because in every respect, every way, he has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. So our high priest, the one who intercedes for us, the Lord Jesus, he knows your weaknesses. He knows the kind of weak that you're going to face. He knows the, the ways that you battle temptation. And he's not unsympathetic. And then verse 16, here's our response. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And that's also part of this, how are we going to fight temptation, fight sin, and... Um, it's going to be with that regular confidence 
freedom to enter, to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the posture, our posture sure is one of a call to holy life. It's also one of being on our knees before our heavenly father, saying, Lord, I need your grace. I need your grace for this area of my life. I need your grace for tomorrow because this is what I'm going to face. And I want to I wanna walk well. I don't want to just be like old Andrew. I don't want to be like that guy. But I want to be the Andrew that you have created to me to be and saved me to be.